Look today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Been a lot of talk, a lot of writing, a lot of commentary over the past few days about the Governor General. Now, we don't talk about her all that much. We don't talk about the position all that much. It's not something I don't think that probably is in your day-to-day conversation around the water cooler. However, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, National Post, Winnipeg Free Press, other papers have all been doing reporting on the issue of Julie Payette and her job as Governor General and whether she's doing a good job or not. And I'm going to read you something, and I think this pretty much, these couple paragraphs, pretty much wrap up the consensus, at least the feeling that most, if not all, of the papers are saying right now. This is from the Toronto Star. Let me read it. As a Toronto Star analysis of her schedule has revealed, Payette has dramatically reduced the number of events she has attended, speeches she has delivered, and trips she has made outside of Ottawa compared to her recent predecessors, David Johnson and Mikhail Jean. She rarely attends events on weekends, has never traveled to Manitoba, Saskatchewan, the Yukon, and six months after the Humboldt Broncos bus tragedy, still has yet to visit the community. At the same time, still with the Toronto Star, at the same time, Payette has stiff-armed a number of organizations with whom previous governors general have worked. She declined to accept daffodils from cancer patients during the Canadian Cancer Society's Daffodil Month, has not presided over ceremonies to present the Duke of Edinburgh Gold Awards honoring young people, and refused requests for her to present the Governor General's medals in architecture. All she has done, it continues, is raise questions about whether she's up to the job. More seriously, it raises the question of whether she even wants the job anymore. Nathan Tidridge is an award-winning teacher at Waterdown District High School. He is also a prolific writer on the monarchy. He's the recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, a Diamond Jubilee Medal, and a long list of other things. He's He's someone who knows his way around this topic very well. He joins us now. Nathan, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. It's uh, good to talk to you again. So I'm reading all these things about Julie Payette and about her, how she's doing in this job as yeah. Governor General. And I, I don't know if this is damning or if this is much ado about nothing. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, it, it does speak to the, the importance of the office itself as Governor General. And so I'm happy that there's, there's a conversation around the role of the Governor General in Canadian society and its importance to different organizations. And uh, the onerous task that being the Governor General is, I think it's speaking to that as well. It's, it, there's a lot of responsibilities. Or, I mean, there's official responsibilities related to government, but there's also that ceremonial protocol aspect to it that we've never really taken a good look at as a, as a society. And so I'm, I'm happy to, to hear that we're having that conversation right now. And, and have we not ever done what you just said? Have we never really taken a look at the ceremonial side? Because m- most, if not all, of the previous governors general have just thrown themselves into it and been going day after day after day, so we've never had to. Um, not necessarily, actually. Uh, it, this is actually, this isn't the first time where we've had a governor general that uh, maybe was a little uh, overwhelmed with the amount of responsibilities and, and the intrusion into their lives. Um, there's, uh, there's accounts the Shriers went through this, I think, in the, early, or the late 70s. Um, I believe Mikhail Jean as well in her first year. And even David Johnson in his first year, there was... Uh, uh, there was kind of a, a trial period before they kind of found their legs and, and really ran with the office. For some background, because I think most yep. people recognize the the over the overarching idea of the governor general. He or yep. she is the queen's representative in this country. Yeah. But what does that actually mean? 
Well, I mean, there's a constitutional aspect of it. I mean, the crown is the foundation of our democracy, and everything kind of rests upon that, our legal system, our parliamentary democracy, and um, and, a, and a lot of the kind of traditions and conventions. So there's a lot of things behind the scenes that you don't see. And while, uh, uh, you know, kind of somebody on the outside would think, oh, it's just signing and, and, a, and a rubber stamp, well, it, it actually speaks to the development of our democracy and is a, is a really important aspect of the state. Um, if you, if you want to kind of see what happens when we have the ceremonial combined with the political person, you just need to look down south to what's going on uh, in the United States uh, to see what happens there. So there's that aspect to it. But then there's also the, the governor general as the representative of the crown has to reflect Canadian society back to it. And that's where you get you get these patronages. So, sorry, you, let me just stop for one second. When yeah. when you say reflect Canada back, does it reflect Canada back, or does it reflect the Queen to the country? Well, that's the role of the Queen. That's the role of the Crown in this country. It is an apolitical. It's a non-political entity that's supposed to represent the entire state. And so, when they go to different events and uh, present different awards and things like that, they're doing that on behalf of the state. They're a reflection of Canada at that time of the as a non-political uh, entity to, to to celebrate the country. That's their purpose, and it's a really important purpose. Um, the analogy that I would give you is um, a, a few years back, I went to the swearing in. I, I have family members that are in the police services. And so I, I witnessed when they were sworn in and their parade and when they received their badge and there's everyone's in their in their dress uniforms. It, it's completely unnecessary to create a uh, create police that way. However, we need that ceremony. It's a rite of passage. It's a moment in the community. And there has to be a certain level of uh, of. Um, uh, prestige attached to that. Um, we need these things in our lives. It's what makes us human. I think of weddings. I'm a, I'm a teacher. Graduation. Uh, a graduation ceremony doesn't confer uh, a graduation. But it yet symbolizes. It's rite of passage. It symbolizes. That's right. And, and that symbolism is important. It's important to us as, as a society. Um, I've done a lot of work with Indigenous people, and that's something that they've really taught me, is the importance of protocol and ceremony um, in our lives to mark these important passages. And the, the Crown is really the only institution that does that in a non-political way. It, it, is a really, it is a really interesting thing we're talking about, because Julie yeah. Payette, uh, she came in October the 2nd last year, she was sworn in, and basically yeah. a month to the day after she arrived in office, she found herself in her first pile of verbal manure, I guess you want to say, because she gave a speech in which she basically took a shot at anybody in Canada who might hold religious beliefs. And there was a lot of blowback at that time for the reasons you said just before the break. And that is in this role, you are supposed to reflect all Canadians. And you also said you're supposed to be apolitical and not really taking these positions. It made me, and I think a lot of other people wonder if she was taking this job with a thought that she could modernize it or change it a bit. Yeah, and it, it, that was that was an unfortunate event. And uh, I mean, let's see, I, I, I try to put it off as, uh, as growing pains in the office or learning the ropes. Um, she sh- or uh, maybe bad briefing on, on, um, on the part of the prime minister's office. I mean, ultimate responsibility for, for her appointment does fall on the prime minister's office. It is the prime minister that recommends the candidate to the queen uh, to become governor general. 
Um, but yes, I, that is one of the preeminent uh, positions is, is that you have to be apolitical and reflect the country back to themselves. Now, uh, Madame Payette has, has not uh, fallen into that trap again. And I mean, she came from a job where your opinion and your um, directness was, was a virtue. So it must have been an adjustment to go from a job like that to one that you're really not supposed to be making those types of statements, at least not in public. No, and and you're absolutely right that that was a virtue before. I, I do wonder, and it was sort of how I asked, I do wonder if maybe she thought that she was in a position to slightly move this into a different place, and after that happened and got smacked down by everybody everywhere, it seemed, yeah. or many people, that she went, okay, let as you say, let's not do this again. But now you get this situation where there are charities that are saying she hasn't come and she hasn't done what other governor general has done. She hasn't been to Manitoba. She hasn't been to Humboldt, which seemed like that one seems like an easy one. I mean, that really seems like an easy one. Does, is there a risk that this position, which has generally for those who really, really care about it, it's been held in very high esteem. Is there a risk that it can be diminished? It's an old institution. It's the oldest Canadian institution. I mean, it, it predates the, the country. It can go, some argue, back all the way to Champlain, which is about 400 years. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it's had its ups and downs, and it carries with it that weight of tradition and history. Um, I, I understand that um, the patronages are under review, and that's the reason why they haven't been picked up yet. Um, but I, I would caution that these patronages, and, and some for uh, are actually all for very worthy causes. I mean, you can't get any more grassroots in Canadian society than some of these organizations. So um, I, I appreciate that things will be under review, and, and I'm hoping that that review process will end very soon so that um, they will pick, a, pick, that, pick them back up. It does when you look at the numbers, and I don't have it right in front of me now, but the numbers that uh, David Johnson was doing and Mikhail Jean, I mean, they were... They were over, on average, or roughly about one event a day almost yeah. that they were averaging. She is down from that by about 100. Yeah. Uh, it, it does sound like it is an onerous position. It is. And remember that Madame Payette does not have a partner to share the load with. Um, and she also does have a, a teenage son that she's trying to preserve as normal a life as possible. So, I mean, that kind of adds into it as well, whereas Madame Jean would have had that, had a, a partner as uh, uh, David Johnson as well to share the burden of those events, but also as that sounding board and that counselor to say, uh, remember, you promised to do this, you should probably do this, mm. or I'll, I'll come with you, I know you're tired, but I'll help you out. She's doing this alone, and, and that has to be... Uh, that has to be taken into consideration as well, I think. there In all the media reports, there has been the recurring question, though, of I wonder if she really, having had a year of this under her belt, really still feels like she wants to do this. We're not going to know that until she answers that question, and I'm sure that she's going to say, oh, sure, I still want to do it. I mean, but if yeah. she didn't, is there is this like the Pope, or is there an out clause for her if at some point she says, you know what, no, I, I'm done, I'm sorry, I can't raise my son and do this job and do everything at the same time. Could she get out? Well, I think so. Um, we had the situation with uh, Romeo LeBlanc a few years back, which for health reasons, he, um, he cut his, uh, his time short. I mean, they, they serve at the pleasure of the Queen, so... I'm sure a conversation could, could you know, facilitate an exit. But uh, I don't get that indication, and I don't get an indication that she doesn't want the job. I mean, um, 
But I think what this is is uh, adjusting to a life that is so radically different mm. from the life previous to it, uh, and maybe needing to listen to the history that uh, that comes with this office and, and understanding the importance of protocol and traditions. We got to run, but who would be the one to tell her that? Because she's above the prime minister in in the pecking order, right? So who would be the one who would sit down and say to her, "Here's what we expect." Um, it would be her office. It would be it would be the prime minister's office. I mean, the prime minister and the governor general are constitutionally have a relationship, and so there's conversations going back and forth. and And I'm sure that there would be conversations like that. Ultimately, the prime minister's office is responsible for their um, their recommended choice for governor general. So um, it, it, there is responsibility that lays at the feet of uh, of the prime minister. Nathan Tidridge, you can see his website, uh, canadiancrown.com, if you want to uh, read more about him. Nathan, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time to do something we do here every week on the show. Will's story of the day. Will is behind the glass. He's the guy who's keeping the show on the air, pressing all the buttons and doing everything else. Here's what we do. I am going to bring three stories, odd, unusual, bizarre, weird, whatever, stories from around the world. I will give you the short version of them. Will will then, using whatever criteria he chooses, decide which one is his story of the day. You can play along at home. No wagering, please. But you can play along at home. You can send me a note if you'd like, radley at 900chml.com, which one would be your story of the day, which you would have voted for. Uh, Story number one today comes to us from Florida. Uh, It doesn't say which city that I can tell. Martin County. I don't know where Martin County is. But anyway, uh, neighbors of a guy in Martin County are not happy with their neighbor because it turns out that he has taken a fancy to doing a lot of yard work, cutting the grass, trimming the hedges, planting flowers, whatever else, way too much yard work. It's not the yard work that's bothering them so much. It's the fact that he has a certain delight, a certain preference for doing his yard work au naturel. Knew it. I knew that is where we were going. He is um, doing all of his yard work in the nude. While all the neighbors are looking over their, or can look over their fence at him while he's doing it. So they have finally called the police and said, can you please ask whatever his name is to have him put on some clothes? Now, I don't know what the law is on this in your backyard. I understand here you can be naked in your backyard, I think, but, um, you know, he's also, I think, from the sounds of it, doing it in the front yard as well. And that makes it a different story. So, yes, we've got story number one is the guy in Florida who the police have told he will be arrested if he cuts the grass au gratin again. <laughs> All right. And as someone, by the way, who has lost two toes to a lawnmower accident, mm-hmm. I can assure you, you don't want to be cutting the grass where things could be, you know, exposed. Way too dangerous. Just saying. All right. Story number two. Uh, Had not really planned this, but there may be a bit of a theme to today's show. Uh, Story number two comes from the University of Colorado, where on Saturday, the mascot, whose name is Chip, was firing the T-shirt cannon on the sidelines. And I guess it may have been day one for the person inside Chip's costume didn't realize, apparently, that the shirt cannon has a very strong recoil, 
a very strong kickback, like shooting a real gun. Oh, no. And when he or she, and I'm assuming it's a he, fired the t-shirt cannon on video, he basically neutered himself. Oh. They actually had to bring a a, a medical cart onto the field to cart him off because this thing fired backwards, hit him in the groin, and he was down for the count, and they had to cart him off to get him help. And I think they may have changed the person inside the costume, put someone new in there, and out he came again. But he looked very fine once he returned, so I think it may have been a replacement chip. But yes, he um, lots and lots of Twitter on this one where he is uh, being carried off with mangled chiplets. Uh, And story number three comes to us from Los Angeles. It's about a high school football coach who's been fired because he didn't tell parents what had happened to the water bucket situation at their recent game. Uh, Apparently, he discovered after the game that somebody had spiked the water bucket with a male enhancement drug. (laughs) (laughs) There is a theme tonight, Scott. (laughs) And so I guess the players, I don't know how you play once you've been guzzling back water filled with a male enhancement drug, but he he was supposed to tell the parents, I guess, that you might want to get your kids. Like, what do you tell the parents? I don't even know what you tell the parents if that happens. Like, (laughs) you, you can't tell them, go check your kids. That would be odd and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You might want to get take them to a doctor. Yeah, I think you could just say that. Just take take them to the doctor. Uh, don't ask them. Don't ask them why. Just let them go talk to their doctor. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like one of those commercials on TV. If it lasts for longer than five hours, get, seek medical help immediately. Well, that may have been it. If you ask your son if he's okay. Yeah, trust me, mom and dads. You don't want to get too into in a detail general, here. In a general sense, are you okay? Uh, and then if not, have them see the doctor. So yes, in, a, in an unintentional themed Will story of the day today, do you like the story <laughs> of the man who has been threatened with arrest if he cuts the grass nude again in Florida, the Colorado mascot who neutered himself on the t-shirt cannon, <laughs> or the LA football coach whose team drank water filled with male enhancement drug during a game? <laughs> <laughs> um... Wow, tough decision. I got I got to go with the uh with the uh with the mascot's um improper use of the t-shirt cannon. Uh yes, you can go and see this. It's all the video is all over online of the mascot firing it off and then hitting the deck. Oh man. In a very very bad way, but um yes, there you go. That is uh we, we it was not intended to be a theme evening, but turned out that way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our friend Rick Zamperin finished about six hours of on the air here, sent him home, had some refreshment, had some nourishment, several goblets of whiskey, and now he's ready to do some more radio. Rick, thanks for joining me again. Thank you. I'm actually a single malt Scotch guy. but uh, Oh, are you? Okay. And I don't believe you're actually home right now, so we're pulling you away from uh, from some some stuff. But I wanted to talk to you uh, yesterday and, and that we get you in today. Because this weekend, like last weekend, like has been the case for many weekends, a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion about where football is going. And we know that everybody is concerned about concussions. We know everybody wants football players to be healthy. But the last couple of weekends in particular, there has been great discussion because a guy named Clay Matthews, who plays for the Green Bay Packers, who's a big, tough guy, and he's a great linebacker and 
He's had a couple sacks that looked like they were about as perfect a tackle technique-wise as you could possibly do. Both times get gets called for roughing the passer, and everyone now is saying, Rick, is this really where we want football to go, that you really can't even almost touch the quarterback without getting flagged for something? It's a good question. I'm not sure where it is going, but I know where it has been over the last three weeks, and it's not in a good place when you are a defensive player. Certainly in offense, these uh, penalties, these infractions, uh, move the ball forward as an offense. I, I think the quarterbacks are enjoying uh, being more than well protected. But in the same light, uh, you know, if you're a defensive player, you, you, I don't think you know how to tackle the quarterback anymore. Because if you go down below the knees, you're going to get flagged. If you go above the shoulders, you're going to get a penalty flag. And now apparently if you land on the quarterback, you're going to get flagged. And that's been the case certainly of Clay Matthews and a host of other uh, players of the last number of weeks. I was, I was reading a story on ESPN earlier today that through the first uh, three weeks of this season, there have been, I think the number is 33 or 34 roughing the passer penalties. And over the same time last year, there were somewhere around 13 or 14. So a dramatic increase. I know the league obviously wants to protect the most coveted position in the game, uh, but it might be going a little too far. Well, and not just the vast number going up, uh, although you're absolutely right about that, but what is being called? It's not just that there's suddenly a raft of guys who are taking shots at quarterbacks. I mean, it's stuff that is, I mean, it, it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would have looked at the hits that Clay Matthews got flagged for and you would have said, you know what, you should have hit him harder because you want to make sure he feels it. And now you're not, as you say, you're not really sure what you're supposed to do, I think. And you know what, uh, you know, Alex Smith, who is uh, now quarterback of the Kansas City, uh, or pardon me, the Washington Redskins, formerly of the Chiefs, uh, he was hit by Matthews a couple of weeks ago. And even in the post-game news conference, he was asked, you know, what would you think about the hit? And Alex Smith kind of, you know, was searching for answers because he admitted that he, he's not sure, uh, you know, what the emphasis of the penalty is supposed to be because he said, you know, he hit me in the strike zone. I mean, I'm not sure what else Clay is supposed to do in that instance. And let's not forget, you know, sometimes, or, or more often than not, we're watching these replays in slow motion. Some of them are in, are in uh, you know, regular motion. Uh, but we can see that, you know, they are textbook, you know, between the shoulder blades. There's no helmet-to-helmet contact. There's no uh, ill will from the defensive player. Certainly in Matthews' three hits, I mean, they were all, really, you could say textbook tackles. But the way... He landed on the QB, which is, you know, the, the addition this year of roughing the passer. Uh, it has brought out the penalty flag. But I'm not sure, as a defensive player, and you're going full speed, and your main goal is to get to that quarterback. Uh, and we even saw it yesterday. Albert Haynes of the Miami Dolphins, gone for the rest of the season with a torn ACL because he led up on Derek Carr as he was going down to the turf. So it's, it's having a reverse effect because now you're having defensive players getting hurt as they're trying to protect quarterbacks. You allude to, and I should have mentioned off the top, but the big difference here, because yes, you cannot hit a quarterback in the head, you cannot hit him below the knees. The big difference this year is this rule that you can't land with all or most of your body weight on the quarterback. And this, to me, Rick, is where things get almost impossible, because how do you uh, change the time-space continuum and all the laws of physics when you are wrapping up a quarterback and you happen to, by your forward motion, land on him, how do you not do that? Well, it's impossible. I think the genesis of the penalty was, you know, they didn't want quarterbacks being driven into the ground. So, you know, 
a quarterback can be wrapped up and then a defensive player can, you know, spin him around or just drive him into the turf. Um, I think they wanted to avoid that. But through the wording of the penalty and, and the letter of the law that the officials are now following is that you know, if you land on the QB with most or all of your weight, that's driving the quarterback into the turf, which physically I'm not sure how a defensive player can stop in mid-motion and change his body so he doesn't land on the quarterback. I think it's just an oversight on the rules committee, and uh, they didn't think about how this was going to be implemented. Well, and where we're going to see the first time, we've already seen, obviously, Clay Matthews and others upset by this, but the first time we see a guy like Cam Newton, who's a big, big man, who's a quarterback for Carolina, or Ben Roethlisberger, who's a big, big man, who's quarterback for Pittsburgh, when you see a defensive player kind of let up and try and wrap him up and pull him down, and these guys just shake him off and then throw a touchdown pass, you're going to have everybody on every team saying, so is this it then? Is it? I mean, basically we're not allowed to touch the quarterbacks. And, and Rick, this to, to me, this is the problem you have here. I understand, and I think you do too. I know you do. Uh, quarterbacks are the big ticket items in football. You want to see your quarterback play. I, but at the same time, I don't think even the quarterbacks want to be seen as guys who aren't football players. Agreed. You know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, uh, you know, calling any headshot, any hit to the head uh, that's serious in nature. I mean, we saw one last night that Ben Roethlisberger kind of went down. He just got, you know, uh, hit in the side of the helmet. It kind of went down, I think, a little too easily, maybe to draw a penalty. But hits to the head certainly have to be called. Hits below the knee, I think that's, you know, a delicate area of the body for, for any player, especially the quarterback who's, you know, planting, you know, his, his front foot and, and, and uh, you know, any hit below the knee is going to cause some significant damage. But between the knee and the shoulders, I think it's, I don't want to say open season, but I think it should be allowed in that area. I mean, this is tackle football. And I understand you want to protect the quarterback. Yes, it's the bread and butter of the league. But when you look around the league, especially in comparison to the CFL, how many starting quarterbacks in the NFL over the last number of years have suffered uh, real serious injuries? I mean, there have been a handful here and there. But when you look at the Canadian Football League, it seems like every week, there's a starting quarterback who is out, or at least over the last number of weeks, a starting quarterback has missed an assignment due to injury. The NFL, and maybe it's because of the rules they've implemented over the last number of years, you don't really see that a lot, especially in comparison to the other positions on the field. So I think the emphasis to make that position a little safer has worked, but I think this latest kind of rule change uh, has gone a little too far. The rules are not exactly the same in the CFL as in the NFL. There are some differences, but the the idea is the same. Again, to keep your quarterbacks on the field and to keep them healthy, does the CFL then have it wrong? I mean, if you're talking about the fact that we're losing quarterbacks to injuries, should the CFL basically be saying, you know what, we're going to put a flag on the guy's belt and we're going to make it flag football for the quarterbacks? (laughs) Honestly, I mean, there are people who are legitimately saying, is that where the next stop is going to be in this? Because we want so desperately for quarterbacks to be on the field. Well, and now with that discussion, and I thought about that too, but with that discussion, you're now putting players out of work. Do you really need uh, rush ins? Do you really need linebackers who are going to storm the pocket? I mean, if you can't, hit the quarterback or take him down, uh, the, the statistic of the quarterback sack is going to disappear. I mean, you, now you're really changing uh, the emphasis of the game, especially from a defensive standpoint. And I don't know whether you put a flag on the belt of the QB or, or tap a button on his back or his front. I'm not sure how that would work. But 
from a CFL standpoint, I like, uh, you know, the no headshots, no hitting below the knees. I, I think the quarterback is well protected, uh, whether it's just an anomaly because there's only nine teams or, or what the case is. But I think the league on both sides of the border really does, you know, a fine job of protecting the quarterback. The thing is, though, Rick, that this rule, these rules are almost then suggesting that the only player in the league that is really all that valuable is the quarterback. It is, you've alluded to it, but it's diminishing every other position because no one else receives this kind of kid glove treatment. Running backs are stars. A lot of running backs are stars, but we're not saying you can't touch them when they're lowering their shoulders. You have to sort of just let them fall to the ground. And no one say linebackers can be stars. You're right. Rush ends over the years have been stars. But these rules are saying really the only guy we really care about is the quarterback. Exactly. The, the only one that would be close would be, well, there's two of them. Number one would be the receiver. I mean, if a receiver is going up for football and he has no chance of catching the football and he gets absolutely drilled, uh, now you've hit a defenseless receiver. I mean, he was in a position where he was vulnerable. You can get flagged for that. The only other one that would be remotely close would be roughing the kicker, where a kicker who, in the kicking motion, again, is kind of defenseless with you know one leg up and one leg kind of down. If he gets hit, uh, whether it's uh, any part of the body, really. I mean, that's another penalty. So, the, uh, But aside from that, and again, again, those go along the, the player safety aspect. But aside from those three positions, QB, receiver, and kicker, there's no other position on the field that is protected uh, like those guys. So uh, are we going to move that way? Are we going to then have a situation where someday down the road a re- receiver who catches a ball? Because what we'll see occasionally, they'll go across the middle and defensive backs or safeties don't try to wrap them up and tackle them. They try to blow them up. They try to hit them, drop the shoulder. Are we going to see that have to go? Because now we don't want our receivers getting hurt. So you now have to wrap him and tackle him. And if he drags you for 10 extra yards, well, so be it. I think we're already seeing it. I, I You know, there's few and far between the mega collisions that we've seen in the past. You'll see one maybe once a week in one game in the NFL, but... When you're looking at you know past films where guys are just getting obliterated going over the middle and they have no hope of catching the football and we're never flagged, nowadays uh, you know the league is putting a greater emphasis on protecting guys from suffering, especially those headshots. You can't lead with the crown of your helmet anymore. Uh, you have to tackle with your face up, which is obviously key and will hopefully reduce the number of collisions or uh, concussions. Um, but yeah, you're just not seeing those violent in comparison to past years those violent collisions in the National Football League. And I think a lot of people are on board with the concept, the general theory behind that. We don't want to see guys have CTE. We don't want endless concussions. I mean, this is what you and I are not talking about this like we're longing for the good old days when Rod Woodson would come across and just kill guys left, right, and center, and they'd be like quivering on the field in a, you know, some sort of horrible thing. But at the same time, there is some part of football, some part of football fandom that is interested in the game because it's rough and because it's hard-hitting, is there not? I mean, that's a, that's a part of the game for the fans. I, I think a lot of fans fall in love with the game because of the violent aspect. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the same situation in hockey. Whenever there's a big hit in football, whenever there's a humongous hit in hockey, an open ice check, someone just gets laid out. That brings fans to the to their feet. I mean, we're we're cheering the ferocity of the game, but at the same point, we are also hoping that that individual who just got laid out is not uh, seriously injured, concussed, forced to the hospital, whatever the case is. I think we want to see the physicality in the sport, but we don't want anyone to get seriously injured. And I think 
uh, the NFL, the NHL, certainly other sports are trying to get to that uh, stage. I'm not sure it's ever going to be perfect, uh, and I applaud them for trying, but what the NFL is doing, especially with this one roughing the passer rule, as I said before, is a little too far. Uh, I think they got to ease back on this rule. Even, I mean, uh, I can't remember which committee is going to be looking at it, but within the next week they're going to sit down to kind of rehash, you know, the wording of the rule and how it's going to be implemented. It may not be changed this year, and that would be interesting because come Super Bowl time, you know, when there's a championship on the line and this penalty, uh, I don't know, leads to a game-winning field goal or touchdown or whatever the case is, uh, you know, that's going to impact the, the history of this sport. So, whether they change it this year or the following year, I think it definitely has to be looked at again. Because it is a subjective call. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because there's no, we're, we're not weighing the defensive player. Oh my gosh! You know, 260 pounds of this 283 pound individual <laughs> landed on the quarterback. I mean, it's impossible to do. You know, this is the official. <laughs> this is the official saying, okay, I, I think most of his or not all or all of his body landed on the quarterback there that might may, be there might be a time where statistically we could do that there may be sure yet, that may be the next step a quarterback has to wear a scale <laughs> on his chest underneath yeah. that will measure it uh, okay just before i let you go because i know you got to get back to your uh, your shopping because um, <laughs> i know you get home home rentals you know yeah. everyone loves their home rentals um the nfl by and large for i don't know how long now has essentially been Untouchable. It's been. It doesn't matter what they've done, what rules they've changed, whatever. Fans have still come. The ratings are down a little bit, but really, there, there's all kinds of reasons why people would believe that. Could the NFL put enough rules in place that it would actually deter people, or is it so Teflon that we're talking about this and people can gripe about it, but they'll always still watch? Uh, I mean, they would have to really do something strange because you know when you look at the NFL. Uh, the, the emergence and the popularity of fantasy football, uh, what it means in Las Vegas. I mean, we're, we're talking billions upon billions of dollars that are being bet on this game. Um, uh, it, the NFL would have to do something completely out of this world, uh, rules-wise, to you know usher fans out the door or away from their tablets or TV screens, uh, because it is such a... Uh, humongous part of a sports fan's life uh, that uh, I, I just can't see the league doing anything that drastic to turn fans away from a rule standpoint, at least. I mean, you look at the kickoff, too. I mean, the kickoff has really been obsolete. We don't see kickoff returns for touchdowns. That rule was implemented a few years ago to enhance the safety of the kickoff return person whose job has almost been eliminated, really. I mean, we're kicking off from the 35-yard line. 99 times out of 100, the kickoff is going into the end zone or through the end zone, and, and the player uh, is either kneeling or you know will bring it back to the 10-yard line. It's really not worth it. So I think that's a prime example of a rule change that has made the game a little safer, maybe not as exciting, but I don't think the fans have turned the sport off just because of that. We will see because, you know, we've got to let you go. But the, um, th- there's been rumblings that Vince McMahon wants to bring the XFL back, and I know they've talked about it. If they ever do that, they are talking that we want to go back to the days when it was much more hard-hitting. And, you know, it would be really interesting to see if that was ever to take place, if fans would watch it just for that, or if we've been reconditioned now and you might watch it and go, ooh, that was uncomfortable. And if we've now learned the other way and we would just stick with the NFL and be happy with that. Well, we'll have to see because they're talking about doing it. It'll be interesting, and, uh, you know, obviously there's going to have to be rules, whether they're going to be aligned with the NFL, I doubt it, because they do, they do want that differentiation. Um, 
But the first time someone suffers a debilitating injury, that league is going to have to look internally and say, okay, how, how do we prevent this from happening again? I think that they would probably be thrilled with a few debilitating injuries. <laughs> lots of highlights, lots of lots of viewership on YouTube and everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, Rick Zamprin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Take care. That is, uh, it's an interesting one because you, football is a sport that is supposed to be rough and nobody wants guys seriously injured, but at the same time, I don't think anybody's too interested in watching flag football. There are flag football leagues. None of them have multi-billion dollar TV deals. There's got to be something in that. There's got to be something, some meaning there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Less than a month until hopefully you're at the ballot casting your choice for who you would like to see as mayor, as counselor, as school board trustee. Well, I'm going to leave out the school board trustee for now, just for this discussion. But with less than a month to go, I really want to know if you have decided who you're voting for for mayor at this point. How many of you actually, and here's the reason I'm asking this question today. Two reasons. One, I want to know. I'm really interested in knowing if there is somebody, because right now there is one very well-known candidate. There are There is one reasonably well-known candidate. And there's a bunch of people who are lesser than that. But what really shocks me to this point, what is really surprising to me is the dearth of stuff that I'm hearing about the election. You would, you would be hard pressed in a lot of places to know we have an election coming up and for the incumbents, that's no problem for the, for the candidates that are already in office. This is gold because we all know that incumbents with their name recognition already have a massive advantage. Well, you would think then that a month out from the election, we'd be getting all kinds of stuff from the people who are trying to get their names known and get out there and topple an incumbent or win a vacant seat. I'm not seeing it. Maybe you are. I'm not seeing it. To the best of my knowledge, not one candidate has come by our house. Not one piece of documentation has been left at my front door. Not one request has been made for a sign to go on my lawn. I'm not going to put one up, but the request still could come. I haven't seen hardly any advertising. I've heard almost nothing as far as chatter. So there's one of two things here. Either I guess they figure everybody's already made up their mind or they're slow starters or whatever, but I want to hear from you. Have you decided who you're going to vote for, for mayor? Have you decided, do you even know who you're going to, who is running in your ward for counselor? Let me go to Karen. Well, let me get the button here. It'll work. There's a way. Karen, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So first of all, I got a few questions I want to go through. Do you know who you're going to vote for for mayor yet? Yes, I know that. Okay. Uh, and w- whether you want to tell me or not, how did you come to that decision? Like, was it was it an easy one, or was it something that you've had to really burrow down to find out? Okay, I live in Burlington, so there's a lot of issues in Burlington. Okay. And the person who's running for mayor is not the present mayor. Okay. And um, she's very proactive about getting citizens involved in this, the Grow Bold. Okay. Going on at Burlington. Yep, yep. And she's very, very active. She's been a councillor for eight years. All right. And that's who I will be voting for, because I know that she is concerned about what the citizens want. Do you know who you're going to vote for for your councillor? That's a a loaded question. There's like five or six people. I'm in Ward 2, which is in downtown Burlington. 
And I think there's like five or six candidates. I do not know any of them or what they're running for, so I will be attending um, an all-candidates meeting on October 1st, I believe. Have you had any documentation, brochures, flyers, anything brought to your door, presented to you on a street? Have you had anything that has reached out to you at this point to seek someone's vote? I have had absolutely nothing. Does that surprise you? Surprising. Very surprising. I'm with you, Karen. I, I'm, I, I get that if it was two or three months out, cause it's a municipal election, I get that would be the case. I've seen, and maybe you've seen something different. I have seen, I think two candidates even have something on social media as far as a Facebook video or a, tw- a Twitter video or something. I've seen only two that even have that, yeah. that I've come across and I just don't get it. I know. I don't understand it at all. I don't, I don't know what the issues are. I think we have, I think in Ward 2 in Burlington, I think we have five or six candidates running for council. Not one of them has come to my door. Not one of them has posted social media. So I don't know. The other thing is, is that with regards to the school trustees, I don't know any of them. I never well, that's, have, that, yeah, that's a tough one. That Honestly, that is tougher. But Karen, listen, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much for this Thank today. Yeah. Uh, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do you know who you're going to vote for for mayor yet in Hamilton, in Burlington, wherever you are? If you do, you're welcome to tell us. I'd love to know. If you don't, though, why not? And I'm not blaming you. When I say why not, that's not on you. I'm asking, like, have you been approached? Have you heard anything? Has anyone come forward yet? Let me just read one email. I am anti-LRT, so I will definitely be voting veto scroll for mayor. That's from Phil in Hamilton. What about you? I want to know, A, if you have decided who you're going to vote for for mayor, because that's really important. There are issues that are going to matter, and the mayor is going to have a big say in that. But that's not the only question I have. The other one is, do you know who you're voting for in your ward? And a second part of that is, do you even know who's running in your ward? Because so many people, it seems, myself included, have seen basically nothing. Less than a month to go to election, basically nothing. There are a couple candidates that I have seen who have been reactive or reasonably active on social media, doing videos on Facebook or something like that. There's been a couple, but that's it. And I just, over the commercial break, I just scrolled through two particular wards, the listings from the Hamilton, the city of Hamilton website that lists all the candidates. Ward one is vacant because Aiden Johnson is not running again. 13 candidates are running. Now, some of them may tell me that they've been really out there and active. I haven't seen anything. Ward three, uh, Matt Green, not running. It's an open ward, 13 candidates running. Not very much as far as familiarity goes. Don't know what's going on. Eva joins me now on the show. Eva, how are you tonight? I'm excellent. Thank you. So the two questions for you, starting with this, do you know who you're going to vote for for mayor yet? No. Okay. Not for mayor, not yet. All right. Still, still have to do some more research and still read up a little bit more about who's doing what. Okay. For the mayor side of things. That makes and that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And and quite frankly, Eva, I'm glad that you have said you're actually going to do that as opposed to either not voting or just showing up and going, "Oh, whatever name. Okay, there's a familiar name, whatever." At least oh, I'll definitely be voting. I, I love that you are doing that. Second thing though, do you know who's running in your ward? 
Yes, I do. Okay, how do you know? I know because um, one of the candidates, well, Brenda Johnson is our councillor presently. We're in Benbrook, and she was going to be running alone, and this person stepped forward to run to give people a choice. Brenda Johnson's more from the Winona area than from Benbrook. It's a huge ward. I don't understand how we're all part of this one big giant geographical ward anyway, because the issues are very different, in my opinion, from one one end to the other. So our other candidate is Walid Shuehat. Yes. And he did he has come knocking at the door. And I do have his son on my lawn and that's who I'm voting for. All right. And you know what? Excellent that someone is that we're hearing that somebody is out there doing this. And I'm sure others are. I'm just not hearing anything about it, Eva. And that's a thing that I just don't understand. The funniest part is, do you know who knocked on my door first? David Sweet, our MP, our conservative minister member of parliament. He knocked on my door last week, getting a jump on the election for the federal election. Hey, good for good for him then for doing that. And listen, as long as someone's as long as someone's hoofing it out there, even listen, I appreciate the call. Thank you for this. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me go to Frank here. Frank, how are you this evening? I'm quite well, thanks. Uh, uh, same questions, Frank. Do you know well, yet you, who you, you're you voting know, for for mayor? Well, I know who I'm going to vote for. At least I think I do. Okay. So far, because like you say, there hasn't been much campaigning. If somebody's going to come and convince me, then tell me uh, like it is, and I'll see whether I'll change my mind. But, you know, I, I want to just, if you don't mind, deviate a bit from this. You mentioned earlier that the turnout rate is going to be, uh, well, yeah, rather skeptical, I guess, that we haven't shown, you know, massive turnout rates in the past. Now, with uh, I was asking your screener, I'm not too sure whether there's five or six incumbents going for mayor. Uh, tell me what it is. It, it's certainly more than two or three. And with the, the there's there's fifteen in Hamilton running well, for mayor. No, doesn't that tell you something? Now, when when those votes are distributed to a turnout rate that let's say I don't know, let's say we're at sixty five percent, then you know what happens. Eh? The, the the diminishing amount of of majority votes to the winner because they're distributed to all the others and it sort of spreads it out. That it's not really an honest indication. Or what, is it not an indication? It's only an indication of those six. Let's put it this way. If 63% turn out, and let's say 33% of the votes were for that one person that won, and all the rest of them that make up the next portion of the 33 to the 63% are spread across the other, then that doesn't tell me whether we've got a, a real thorough indication of Everybody wants this person mayor. Two points. Or, 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 the, or ever, no, let's, let's stay with the mayor, yeah. Yeah, two you points I mean? really quick, Frank, because i got to run. The first one is when you say 66% vote, you're dreaming. It's going to be less than half of that. That's the first problem. Well, then, then you're adding more fuel to my fire. Right? Absolutely. But exactly. the second part is you do, you, Frank, and Eva, who called before, and Karen, who called before, and everybody listening, you all have the option to do it. So I have no sympathy and no worries if people are griping about it afterwards if they didn't go out and vote. If it's a oh, if somebody oh. wins and they've won only twelve percent of the popular vote and they get to be mayor and seventy percent of people in Hamilton didn't vote, too bad, so sad for them. You deal with what you get because you didn't okay, go I'm out and leave vote. You with this quickly. Yes. But your next program is going to be how are we going to get more people out to vote? That, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And you know what the answer is, Frank? And we got to go. You know what the answer is? I know what part of the answer is. I have no idea. I know part of the answer. Too many people are leaving this city to go to work every day and they don't live here. And, then, and they're not really, you know, they're not really Hamiltonians like we have in the past. Frank, I appreciate Simply the said. call. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. That's, um, look, we're going to be talking about this again. We've got a month to go and almost nobody, it seems knows a lot about it because there's not much going on in the election world right now. And again, that to me is shocking.
I'd love to hear from you. Radley at 900CHML.com. Uh, KG, by the way, writes in, I'm voting Vito Scroll. And in Ward 3, Brandon Cavanaugh. I have not heard from any of the candidates. And he says, not firm on both of those. So there you go. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML.